0: Now, brothers and sisters, I ask that you take out a Bible wherever you're at. Take out your own Bible and turn with me to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22 is where we're going to be today. Numbers chapter 22. uh, We're actually going to spend a significant time in Numbers 22, 23, and 24 uh, this is not a typical sermon in terms of structure. A lot of times, when we give a sermon, uh, us preachers, we, we like to have a nice text that's right there. You know, maybe five verses or something like that that we can just read and stick right there, and then you know, give it right to you. It's, it's a nice package. But uh, today, we're going to cover a lot of ground in Scripture because Numbers 22, 23, and 24 actually cover the same story essentially. Uh, And so we've got a lot of ground to cover. Of course, we can't read all of that uh, in one sermon. And since we're covering so much ground, I'm going to have to do a little summarizing of the story to kind of move us along through the sermon today. But there's so much good stuff in here in these chapters. We're going to be looking at Balaam, Balak, which are two characters in this story, and the power of God. Uh, I deeply encourage you sometime today, perhaps, to take your Bibles and read through Numbers 22, 23, and 24 all together if you can. So you can get the full picture of what we're going to be looking at in today's sermon, Numbers 22 through 24. Now, at this point in our text, in our book of Numbers, this journey that we've been on uh, for the last couple months through this book, at this point the Israelites are coming up on the Promised Land. They're right there. They're right across the Jordan River. If you remember your Old Testament, the Jordan River is the boundary that they have to cross to get into the promised land. The land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their ancestors. They're right there though. They're on the brink. And remember this is the second generation now that has come up to the brink of the promised land. The first generation, when they came to it in Numbers 13 and 14, they rebelled. They they did not trust the Lord. They did not believe that he had the power to defeat those enemies for them and give them the land he said he wanted to give them. And so God sentenced them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness so that that entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, would die off. And a new generation could be then brought to the promised land. And now those 40 years have passed and they are coming up on the promised land. But as they have come up to the edge... They have been noticed, the Israelites have been noticed by other groups of people dwelling in that part of the land. And some of those groups of people have thought to attack the Israelites, and God has given some of those people already, some of those people dwelling in the outskirts, God has already given some of those people into the hands of the Israelites and defeated them and protected his people. And now the king of Moab, Balak, is afraid of the Israelites. He sees their number He has heard what they have done to the other surrounding peoples, and he's afraid. And so he's going to call out to a spiritual power, he thinks, a spiritual power that can defeat them for him. And today we're going to see the the, the power encounter, so to speak, between God and the spiritual forces of the universe. Let's look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Numbers chapter 22 22, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. Beyond the Jordan, so they're right there. Jericho's the first city they go into in the book of Joshua. Verse 2, And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, "This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field." So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammon, to call him, saying. Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their their hand." And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, the king of Moab, they sees this, this vast number of people, this sea of Israelites. He's afraid of them because of what he has heard. They have defeated other groups of people already. And so he calls out, sends a message to Balaam. Now, Balaam is an acclaimed and renowned soothsayer. He's a practitioner of divination here. All right? That's what Balaam does. He taps into the spiritual world and tries to give messages or what, whatever he can do. And he does this for money. Right? This is who Balaam is, this character. He's like a, a witch doctor or a medium. All right, And you can see hints of, of that here in our story and here in these three chapters. But I, I want you to know too, there are also other places in the Bible that give us some information on Balaam, this character, that, that show us... Essentially who he is. You see, some people will read Numbers 22 and 23 and they'll think, well, this Balaam might be a good guy. He might be a prophet of the Lord. He's not a good guy. He's not. Don't make that mistake. There are other places in the Bible that you can look up later that refer back to Balaam and help us to understand, along with our text today, Balaam's not a good guy. He's just someone who tries to tap into the spiritual world for material gain. All right? He's trying to tap into the spiritual world for material gain, which is an extraordinary, extraordinarily dangerous thing to do, right? Because number one, God will not be used like that, right? God will not be used for material gain. But number two, it's so dangerous because the spiritual world has more than just good spirits in it. There are spiritual forces both for good and for evil in our world, right? Right? And oh, how happy it must make Satan when someone is opening themselves up to the spiritual world like this. And Satan's licking his chops, right? He's thinking, here's someone I can use as a tool in my hands to deceive people and to lead people away from God. It's an extraordinarily dangerous thing for human beings to open themselves up, carte blanche, to the spiritual forces of this world because they're not just good There are evil spiritual forces in this world as well. Now, notice back in verse six, this is super important to our our sermon today, our text. Notice back in verse six, how when Balak sent a message to Balaam, he said this He says, For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now, right away, You need to see here that God is showing us there's a power encounter going on between him, God, and Balaam and the spiritual forces that he typically wields. Okay, Because Balak thinks Balaam is the one who, when when he blesses, they're blessed. And when he curses, someone is cursed. But that's God. We've seen that throughout the Bible and throughout the book of Numbers. When God blesses. He is the only one that you can say, when he blesses, that person is blessed. And when he curses, that person is cursed. right? And so God is setting this up with verse 6 immediately, giving you a hint that, no, no, God's the only one that you can say that of. And God is going to be out to prove that over the course of chapters 22, 23, and 24. He is the only one that we can say, He whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. And Balaam here, the the practitioner of divination, the guy trying to tap into these spiritual forces, he's about to have an encounter with a spiritual being that he will never forget. Now at this point I've got to tell a little bit of the story because we just can't read it all. But the, the men from Balak, they come to Balaam, they make the journey, and they ask Balaam to come back with them. They tell him, the, the, the king of Moab wants your services. And he actually, Balaam actually inquires of the Lord, which is one of the reasons people might think he's a good guy. He goes and asks God what he should do. Now remember, God is just one of the, the vast array of spiritual forces that Balaam has opened himself up to. He doesn't care if it's God or some false demon or Satan. It doesn't matter to Balaam. He's just trying to tap into the spiritual world to make money. Okay? But he actually asks God, and God responds. God tells Balaam, don't go with them. But then Balak sends another group, a more impressive group to Balaam, to, to say, please come, and I will pay you for your services. And then Balaam actually goes with them. Okay? And once Balaam gets there, Balak says to Balaam, I want you to curse these Israelites for me. I want you to curse them. Tap into your spiritual reserve, your your spiritual connections, and curse them for me. And what happens? Well, Balaam actually goes to pronounce a curse on the Israelites, but he can't do it. He can't curse them. God stops him from doing it. And in fact, the words that come out of his mouth are actually blessings upon the Israelites. God forces words out of his mouth that are blessings. So look at chapter 23 with me. Chapter 23, starting in verse 7. Watch this. Chapter 23, verse 7, it says, And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And then look at verses 11 and 12. It says, And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I, I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And so, do you see what God is doing here? Do you see what God is doing? God is about to show all of these people, God is showing everyone who will ever read this, and He's showing Balaam and Balak, No, I am the one. Whom when I curse someone, they are cursed. And when I bless someone, they are blessed. All other spiritual forces in the world are as nothing before God. That's, what, that's the first and foremost thing we learn here. All other spiritual forces in the world are as nothing before God. Balaam, this renowned practitioner of divination, is reduced to a mere messenger boy for God. And this teaches us that Every spiritual or political or even military force in the universe is as nothing before God. God looks down from his throne at kings and presidents and indeed spiritual forces, at Satan and his demons, and God says, oh, that's, that's cute. They think they're powerful, right? Right? It's like if a five-year-old boy were to strap on his football pads and line up at the line of scrimmage right across from an NFL lineman and say, give me what you got. Right? He would get smoked. He would get crushed. The only way he is saved is if that huge man has compassion on him. right? The power difference is immense. It's immeasurable. And in fact, in the story, this is very interesting. In the story, God humiliates Balaam... As he's on the way to curse the Israelites, God shows him who's really in charge. I would encourage you to read, especially chapter 22 and the the segment where Balaam has this episode with his own donkey. It's a hilarious part of scripture with tons of irony in it that makes it all the more funny. In chapter 22, as Balaam is riding his donkey on the way to meet Balak, God puts an angel in the way of them an angel with a sword to stop Balaam in his tracks, right? And and the irony is the donkey can see the angel and Balaam can't. The donkey keeps turning aside because he sees the danger. But Balaam, who's supposed to be this wise man in touch with the spiritual world, he can't even see what a donkey can see in the spiritual world. The donkey can see it. God's humiliating Balaam here. And then on top of that, and this is great, God opens the mouth of this donkey, and the donkey and Balaam have a conversation about it. Balaam and his donkey are talking to one another, and the donkey uses logic and argument to stump Balaam. This wise prophet of a man who's supposed to be you know, tapped into all the spiritual wisdom of the world, he loses an argument to a donkey. The conversation actually gets to the point to where Balaam is listening to the donkey and saying, oh yeah, good point, to the, the, this donkey, right? And it's as if God is saying, I'm going to expose what you think is wisdom and power, and I'm going to show it for the foolishness and the weakness that it really is, right? That's, that's God's kingdom. That's the world that we live in. So much of what the world thinks is wisdom and power is actually foolishness and weakness. When you think about the way things really are, the way that God has set up the world to work, and the kingdom that God is setting up. In fact, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1. God is always using the foolish in the world to shame the wise and the weak in the world to shame the strong. God's kingdom is, is upside down from what the world really is. In fact, we could say it's, it's right side up and the world is upside down. Now, as you read through this story, as you read through this story of Balaam trying to curse the Israelites, Balak trying to pay him to do it, and, and it won't happen because the Lord won't allow it, you begin to see another theme. And the theme is this. When God sets his blessing on someone, nothing can take it away. Right? When God sets his blessing on someone, nothing can take it away. This is a, a great encouragement to those of us who are children of God this morning. Now, back in 22, verse 6, if you remember, Balak is sending the message to Balaam and he says, I know, Balaam, I know whoever you curse is cursed. And whoever you bless is blessed. Well, look at 23, verse 8. In 23, verse 8, Balaam says, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And then look at chapter 23, verse 20 with me. Again, Balaam's talking here and he says, Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, the Lord has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. Balaam cannot curse the Israelites because God has set his blessing on them. And if God sets his blessing on someone, nothing, no force in the world can take that blessing away. Balaam has no choice in the matter. When God pronounces judgment, there's nothing we can do, right? When God pronounces something, there's nothing we can do. In Job 42, 1 through 2, it says no purposes of God's can be thwarted. In Daniel 4, 35, no one can question him or stay his hand. Isaiah 43, 13, no one can deliver from God's hand or turn back his works. He is in complete control. The power that the Lord wields is greater than any force in the universe. And it's immeasurably greater. It's not even close. It's not even a contest. Now, that might be a frightful thought for those who are God's enemies, as it should be. But for those of us who are his children, this is beyond encouraging. Beyond encouraging. Whomever the Lord sets his blessing on, nothing can take it away. Romans 8 Starting in verse 38, says this Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an encouragement. Now, this does not mean that someone can get baptized and then go live in sin guilt-free because once saved, always saved, right? Once you're saved, you're always saved. It doesn't matter what you do. That's not what it means. What it means is no outside force can touch your inheritance if you're a Christian. No outside force can touch your inheritance if you're a Christian. God has it secured for you, waiting for you. It will not perish, spoil, or fade. And nothing can take that away from His hand. No outside force. No outside force can separate you from God's love. Not even Satan. Not even Satan. Yes, there's a spiritual world out there. Yes. And it's filled with forces for good and for evil. And yes, those evil forces, they are stronger and smarter than we are. Right? Think about it. Satan's been around for a whole lot longer than any of us has. Satan is stronger and smarter than we are, but God is in perfect command of all of the spiritual forces. He has them under his thumb. Satan can only do things that God allows. God could end them all in a second with a snap of his finger, or a thought in his head. None of them have the power to challenge God. And so when God sets His blessing on someone, nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. Let's look at Numbers 23, 19. Verse 19 in chapter 23. This is one of the more well-known verses in this chapter and in this passage. Numbers 23, 19. Again, this is Balaam speaking. And he says, God makes him say, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? What's Balaam saying there? What's God making him say there? When God speaks, it's set in stone. When God says something, take it to the bank. When God blesses someone, no one but God can take that blessing away. No force outside of God can take that blessing away when God sets his blessing on someone. And so if you're a Christian this morning, be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that. If God sets his blessing on you, there's no force in the universe that can do anything about that. But if you're not a Christian this morning, let that drive you to Christ. Don't you want that? Don't you want A blessing, an eternal blessing from the Lord. Don't you want an inheritance waiting for you for all eternity that no one can take away? You can have that in Christ. You can have that in Christ. God is the only one whom when He says something, it goes every time. It's set in stone. And so, as I read through these chapters, as I have been reading through these chapters, especially this past week... In this story, I'm looking at Balaam and I'm asking myself a question. And I want you to ask yourself this question too. I'm looking at Balaam, what he, what he is trying to do and what he can't do and what the Lord is making him do. I'm looking at him and I'm asking myself, Am I compelled to obey God rather than working for the praise of others? Am I compelled to obey God rather than working for the praise of others? Look at chapter 23, verse 11 one more time. 23:11. It says, And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he, Balaam, answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Then look back at twenty-two thirty eight, chapter twenty-two, verse thirty-eight. Look at that one more time with me. Twenty-two, verse thirty eight. Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Right? Now, Balak here is trying to pay off Balaam to curse the Israelites for him. And Balak says in the story, he said he would have honored Balaam if he had done it. But now Balaam won't receive anything because he's spoken God's words. He's not spoken what Balak was paying him to do. I'm not going to pay you to curse them for me. So Balaam says God's words. And then he suffers for it. He doesn't get the the thing that that he was originally going to get, the honor and the payment. Now there's a sense in which Balaam didn't have a choice, but, but us, we have a choice, don't we? We have a choice. And so are you ready to obey God even when it hurts? Are you ready to obey God even when it hurts? Are you ready to obey God when it's going to hit your pocketbook? Or when it's going to negatively affect your family? Are you willing to obey God when you know you're going to lose admiration and respect from others? In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4, there's this wonderful picture of this principle we're looking at. Peter and John have been teaching in the temples and in the courtyards, and they get arrested by the authorities. And in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 18, we read this. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You see what they did there? They said, think about it. Judge for yourself whether we should obey God or you. Right? And Peter and John have the perspective, the clarity to to know. That makes no sense at all. It would be like if someone came up to me and said, John, I I don't think you, you should preach the way you preach. I don't think you should say some of the things that you say. You know, I think you should leave some of these parts of the Bible out. right? I don't really like it when you talk about this. Well, if I'm doing my job right, and it's not just me, it's any preacher. If, if preachers do their job right, and people have a problem with what they're preaching, the, the problem is not with the preacher. The problem is with God and God's Word. right? Because it's not up to us what we preach. It's not up to us. Now, not all preachers do this, but it's, it's not, it shouldn't be up to us what we preach. It's the word of the Lord. Honestly, I feel like I don't have a choice in the matter. And so if I'm doing my job right and someone has a problem, your problem's not with me. Your problem's with God, okay? And so if someone tries to talk me into preaching something that's not God's word or watering down the gospel or, or something like that, my response is going to be like Peter and John. I'm going to be like, listen, do you think I should listen to you or listen to God? Do you think I should obey you or, or God? Who do you think I'm going to be more afraid of? You or God, right? Now, I, I'm not saying that I don't have sinful imperfections here and that I, I, don't, I don't fall to the attitude of caring about others too much sometimes. But if, if I'm doing my job right, that's how I should be as a preacher, right? I, sh- I should be more afraid of God than any man, right? I should fear the Lord, not people. I should work to please and obey the Lord, And not work for the praise of other people. And so how are you going to apply that in your own life today? How does that work for you in your situation? Are you compelled to obey God rather than working for the praise of others? Because if you're a Christian, that question is going to be put to you. All right, There's going to be a line in the sand at times in your life. And the question is going to be, are you going to obey God or are you going to work for the praise of others? You can't do both. You can't do both. Jesus says as much in John chapter 6 and John chapter 8, you cannot follow Christ and work for the praise of others at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Are you ready to obey God even when it hurts? That's the question that I'm asking myself and I think we should all ask ourselves as we read this story of Balaam and Balak. Now Jesus is our ultimate example here. Jesus is our ultimate example. He obeyed God even though it hurt. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus on his face praying to the Lord. It said his sweat was like drops of blood. He was so stressed and so worried about what was about to happen because he knew and he prays to God, God, if there's any other way, please let, let this cup pass from me if there's any other way to do this. But after the prayer is over, he gets up resolute and sets his face to that cross to die in the way he knows he has to die. And as he was on the cross, we know that he could have called down a legion of angels to destroy everyone right there and set him free. But he didn't. He stayed there and he was obedient to the point of death. Obedient to the point of shedding his blood and dying. Why? So that God could set his blessing on those who do not deserve it. Jesus was obedient to the point of death so that God could set his blessing on those who do not deserve it. Jesus obeyed God even though it hurt to an extent that none of us will ever do. Because of the wrath of God that was coming upon him. And he did that so that we could now obey God even though it hurts. So that we could now have the power because of the cross, because of the spirit that lives inside of us. So that we could have the power to obey God even when it hurts. So that we could have the perspective to know our inheritance is waiting on us. And God has set his blessing on us and he cannot take it away for any power In the world, only God himself could take away that blessing, but nothing will take it away from him, setting it on us. Jesus died so that could happen, so that God could set his blessing on those who do not deserve it. And those who have that blessing on them could have the hope of an inheritance that will not perish, spoil, or fade. An inheritance for all eternity. And so this morning, I want to ask every single person watching this today, Are you you living for God or are you living for others? Are you living for yourself? You cannot serve two masters. Do you have the hope that I just described? Do you know the Lord? Do you know that if your time was up today, where you would spend eternity? I want you to have that assurance because you can have it. It is possible to walk around knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where you would spend eternity if you died today. If you don't have that, Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you are not a Christian, if, if you do not have the assurance of your salvation, give us a call at the church office. Send, send me an email. My email address is john at org. Just spelled straight out, J-O-H-N, columbiachristian.org Contact someone. Don't wait until it's too late to give your life to Jesus, to be saved, to have your sins forgiven, and to be reconciled To him. Jesus obeyed God to the point of death and suffered more than anyone has ever suffered so that God could set his blessing on those who do not deserve it.